Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Graham Botright. Uh, Graham is the CEO of the Gap Partnership, and they specialize in commercial negotiation, advice, training, and consultancy. Graham, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Very nice to, uh, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your background, please? Yeah, of course. I've been at the Gap Partnership for coming up 20 years. Um, I've run the business for the last um, couple of years prior, uh, prior to that. So I kind of ran the operation here. I've been in consulting for a little bit longer than that, always in people strategy uh, and psychology and helping organizations be more, more commercial through psychology. That's coming out of a, a background in retailing uh, for the, the previous 10 years, uh, again, in various different commercial worlds. So I see myself as a psychologist meets, meets commercial leader. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, certainly my experience is that 90% of what I do is psychiatry and uh, 10% has been selling. So let's kick off with the million-dollar question. Why is it so damn difficult to get your own side to work in the same direction and uh, to the company's interests? Because I think one area of uh, negotiation that many people really need to develop skill in is just negotiating internally. You couldn't be uh, couldn't be more correct. And it, uh, when we speak to most clients, what what I hear them saying is, "Help me negotiate with the other side." But you're absolutely right. The biggest challenge is them getting their own ducks in a row and getting their own house in order. And I think there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, factors that that get in the way of that. None less, of course, than uh, than being absolutely clear what they're truly trying to achieve. You've got many senior stakeholders that are all uh, trying to achieve different things and they're misaligned. And of course, that misalignment then gets fed through to the teams who are at the coalface who are, who are trying to implement this stuff. And there's nothing more frustrating when I talk to account managers or procurement managers that say they're getting mixed messages. They, they, they take a deal or a relationship with a, with a partner to a certain level. And then, of course, things get escalated and immediately the boss comes in and undermines the commercial power that they've managed to build throughout the process. So I think it's being absolutely clear about your objective, being really clear about what it is you're trying to achieve, first and foremost, and making sure that you've got everyone aligned behind that. That is one of the biggest issues that gets in the way. That's really important. But again, it sparks the question in my mind that if you have that kind of disconnect or that internal conflict, Chances are there's a question around whether or not the executive leadership team really has clarity on their own strategy. Would that be a fair, uh, fair observation? Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true. Um, although I, I wonder if perhaps more the, 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 the challenge is how they're going to go about implementing it, having different views around the right way to do things. Uh, and that certainly isn't clear. I think very often when you're talking about a commercial challenge that people are facing, they think that the, the, the challenge is very obvious. They want to uh, they, they want to make a few more points on their margin or some, something like that. How they go about achieving that then is that there are many different ways. There's no right or wrong answer to how you do it, but you've got to get people aligned. You've got to get people in a room to really understand it and all uh, and all talk in the same direction. And uh, and that's what's failing more often than not. They don't do that. And I, I think organisations don't take 
having that commonality of, of alignment seriously enough and put enough time into their planning process. They quite often just get into winging it and, uh, and shooting from the hip without really taking the time and committing the energy to, to understanding what it is they're trying to achieve in, a, in an aligned way. Well, th- this then raises the obvious question because what you're doing in effect is you're wasting time, money, resource, opportunity. You're probably damaging your reputation and your brand. You're losing customers. You're increasing your costs. And I think far too often the MO is ready, fire, aim. And your point about planning and asking reflective, difficult, uncomfortable, challenging questions has to be the starting point whatever your negotiation, it's what are we trying to achieve? What is the other party trying to achieve? Where is their alignment? And what do we have in common? Because I think far too often, negotiations start in an adversarial manner. When people look at the points of difference rather than the points of commonality, is that fair? I think you're absolutely right. You you raise a number of really important points in there that are worth coming back to. You, you talk about sort of starting. Well, people think, first of all, they think that negotiation happens the moment that you open the door and you sit around the table with the either supplier or, or, your, or your buyer. They think that's where the negotiation starts. I would argue that that is 90% of the way through the process. Oh, absolutely. Ninety yeah, percent of the of a negotiation is all done before you get into the room, in my view, and that's the bit that people are, aren't committing enough time and energy to. And and if you think about it, the types of issues that clients talk to us about are how do you make our people better at negotiating, which of course is critical. You do need to improve those skills of what happens in the negotiation room. What our clients tend often not to be asking themselves is what are the processes we need to put in place in our organization to make sure that we're thinking about all the elements that happen to give us the most power possible when we get into the negotiation room. The other point you just raised, which I think is a critical one, is you talked about the sort of point of being that being adversarial. Interestingly, in my experience, most people are scared of getting adversarial with their suppliers or their or, or, or their buyers. And actually, by being more direct and being more, more upfront, I think probably helps to build the relationship rather than the opposite. And, and particularly if I look at salespeople um, and, and salespeople, how often, I mean, I, I know you, you and I have talked about this before and you've said a similar thing. Salespeople try and buy the relationship. Um, that, that, that they're in. And of course, you, you we both know when you try and buy that relationship, all that does is generosity engenders greed. And the other party just wants more and more. And, uh, and, and that can't work. So you have to make things hard to obtain for the other party in order to create the symbols of success and, uh, and the satisfaction. My favorite book on negotiation is Jim Camp's Start With No. I'm going to build on that point in a minute. But what what I'd really like to uh, dig into first is that buyers actually find it almost offensive when a salesperson tries to buy the business because they know that you've been trying to pull a fast one on them. If you go in with your best price and you say, my price is my price, if you're going to give concessions around price, do you need to get something of equal value or greater value back in return. 
And you don't always get paid just in money. It could be that you get paid in terms of a longer term on the contract, which is exceptionally valuable in terms of referrals, or you get first bite of the cherry on the next piece of business. Or if you give them a concession today, you get some more fat in the next deal uh, for which you are in pole position. And far too often, salespeople think it is about the money. I've spoken to several procurement professionals right at the top of their game and several CXOs. And without exception, when a salesperson turns up and then tries to buy the business, it triggers in their mind, what else have they not given me? What else can I put them under pressure in order to see if I can get a better bargain? And that doesn't set you up for a, a good relationship. That's not win-win. That's win-lose. Um, and it becomes a zero-sum game. You look like you have a response to this. <laughs> no, completely. It's fascinating, isn't it? If you take your typical procurement person, your typical buyer, and you slice them in half or stick a microphone in, you just hear price, 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 price the whole time. If you take the typical salesperson, you probably have to do the same thing, slice them in half, put a microphone in, you hear volume, volume, volume. And of course, the, the, the deals they cut are so often short-term, it's volume against price and, and very one-dimensional and uh, two-dimensional at best. Your point is so well made, which is it's not about price, it's about value. And once you start to think about that total value and you start to think of all the different elements that come into that, suddenly it's a much more interesting conversation and a much more mutually beneficial conversation. You, you mentioned the phrase win-win, which of course is the, the great, probably invented by the, the Americans back in the back in the 60s and 70s that it was all about win-win. I, I find that um, some people are cynical about the concept of win-win because, of course, one party tends to win more than the other. And I think that's true. But once you start to understand the concept of trading variables, low, low cost for high value, then suddenly, quite often the intangible uh, things that are very difficult to put a cost or a value on, but we know carry inherent value in them to us, then suddenly you can create uh, incredible value for, for for not just one but both parties and you start to think much more long term that's how you start, start with all true partnerships one of the things that i've observed with depressing regularity is the absolute absence of any real understanding of a customer's business the moving parts behind it the implications of a purchase decision the outcomes that the customer is trying to achieve. I, I was speaking to someone today. She was after some career advice. And she's taken on a role where the vendor organization has really set her up to fail. She's got several different lines of business with each of them has a seven-figure target associated with it. There's been no accommodation of the fact that in two of those markets, she's starting from a completely green field and selling into enterprise, trying to sell a commodity product or service, they are going to have contracts in place. It's largely going to be a displacement sale. Odds are it's going to be a competitive bid or tender. Um, and the sales cycles for on the type of stuff that she sells are minimum nine months probably longer. 
Uh, but the implications of those decisions may affect these buyer organizations for five, 10, or even longer years. And because they're a technology company, they think that they sell technology. But no one in the history of humanity has ever woken up and said, I want a network. I want a managed service. I want a mainframe. I want a website. They buy outcomes and they rent those outcomes for as long as the outcomes remain relevant. And what most vendors or sales teams do not understand is that they have enormous leverage if they understand the outcomes if they understand the value that the organization is trying to invest in, if they understand the strategy, and if they understand what the long-term implications are, and who is affected, and what can be replaced. But they're obsessed with talking about their ugly kid. It's just unbelievable to me that despite the fact that the evidence is out there, but the results are not, that turning up and vomiting a load of stuff about your company, your products, your services, how wonderful you are, who your investors are, showing a photograph of your head office, and then wondering why no one gives a damn. You and I both know every procurement person, every buyer you ever speak to, they laugh at the fact that they sit down with with the salesperson, the account manager, who presents them the 200-deck slide pack, and all they do, of course, is flick to the back page. That's all they're interested in. (laughs) You're absolutely right. I I remember years ago, I uh, went on a ride-along with a prospect to see uh, one of their sort of a customer. I mean, they bought next to nothing. And they put together this glossy proposal. And uh, the MD just went to the second from back page, scrolled down it and said, Fujitsu, they're three times the price of Dell. Why the fuck are they in there? I said, well, they're the greenest. I give a fuck about green. Give me Dell. And in the end, the only thing they ended up buying from this, I think it was a £55,000 proposal, was a server cabinet, which they had to deliver on a Sunday at cost. They were so bad. Unbelievable. But that, that is the norm. No wonder buyers are clicking their heels with glee. Every time Absolutely a salesperson walks at the door, they're thinking, <laughs> ka-ching. And you talk to another very interesting uh, interesting point, which is so many people, when they go into to a deal, they go in with their own, their bonus on a certain outcome. And, and of course, that's important. And that's driven by the company's objectives, which is all about delivering their shareholders' value. Actually, none of that is relevant to the deal that they're going to, that they should be trying to get here because the other customer. The customer is the person that knows what they're prepared to pay. And therefore, the best deal that you as a salesperson can get is understanding what could this customer pay and what might they go to. So therefore, the only thing that's relevant really in your preparations, getting inside the other guy's head and understanding their their perspective. And I think you, you made the point earlier on about asking these brilliant questions to really understand kind of the... The, the circumstances of the other party, understand what are their priorities, what, what what are their interests, and where are they flexible? That's what we spend too little time doing. And thinking about how do we get inside their head and get that information? I've done a lot of work with managed service providers, and I'm minded of a conversation I had some time back with one that sells into the NHS. And they were involved in a bid 
for a merger between two large trusts. One, absolutely top of the league tables, phenomenal performance, teaching environment, huge amount of research money, great clinical outcomes. Next door, pretty much the opposite. And these two were merging. And they'd never thought to have the conversation about, well, what is it that we need to do as a managed service provider to help ensure that the standards in your flagship do not diminish? When we compare the spend on pharmaceuticals, when we compare life expectancy, when we compare clinical outcomes, when we compare disease ratios for diabetes, heart disease, cancer, what can we do as a technology company to facilitate the improvement in the weaker party without any diminishing uh, of the service and the standards within the more successful one? And they came at it from the perspective that we sell technology. And the mistake then is that you end up in an RFP where it's you against everybody else. And the only thing they've got to discern between the uh, competing parties is price. Yeah. As opposed to how are you going to help us improve life expectancy over the next 10 years? What can you do to take our spend on pharmaceuticals down from 12 to 5% of our overall budget? How can you free up budget in order that we can recruit more clinicians and we can improve our research facilities and improve our teaching capabilities, buying better equipment? I think what we've seen over the last, I guess, sort of 15 to 20 years is a, is a growth of, of a procurement sort of approach and trying to commoditize services and commoditize everything and, and, and just drive around price. I think that what we may have found over the last year and a half through the pandemic, that there may be a, a tidal change in that sort of mentality that people are starting to move back to thinking about what, where is the value here? What are we really about? What are we really trying to create? And it'll be interesting, any time we tell, but it'll be really interesting to, to see once the dust starts to settle as uh, we move back to whatever the new normal looks like, whether or not people realise that actually commoditizing things is unhelpful. You get, at the end of the day, you get what you pay for. And of course, if you are buying service, you want to, you want all the added value that you get with that. What we're seeing with quite a lot of our clients, so, you know, I've, I've talked, we did, we've done a big piece of work recently with a, with a chocolate manufacturer who obviously their biggest purchase. Sorry. <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> their, their, their biggest, um, their biggest purchase is cocoa. And uh, when you go and buy cocoa, I mean, it's a, it's a pure commodity, you could argue, but, um, but actually, in today's world, it's not just a pure commodity because you want to make sure that you're buying it from sustainable sources. You want to make sure that uh, the, the, the way that it's, uh, it's picked is done in a, in a, in a proper way and uh, an ethical way. And suddenly when you start to look at suppliers and value these things, which, of course, your end consumer today really values and will purchase based on that, you suddenly start to look at a, different, uh, a totally different way of buying and a totally different way of negotiating. I had interviewed someone uh, yesterday who specializes in uh, risk management in the supply chain. And what was really fascinating was the complexity of supply chain. In Apple's case, for example, they have up to 30,000 suppliers, most of whom they have zero visibility in because outside of Wuhan 
they have no idea what the hell's going on. Now, right. all of these organizations have anti-slavery policies, they have sustainability uh, policies, they have um, uh, environmental policies, and it actually seems to be journalists that do most of the digging to find out what the hell is really going on within the supply chain. Now, I think far too few salespeople and vendors certainly spend enough time doing their research. So let's let's play, uh, spend some time talking about the necessary setup. Training, I think, is a tiny proportion of it. And I, I'm pretty sure you agree as well. There's yeah. all the other stuff, research, preparation, rehearsal, planning, pre-morteming, all this kind of stuff. So let, let's well, talk about that. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff which is around behavior and skill, which training can, can, can help with. And uh, but there's also making sure you've got the right people in the first place. That you, And that's quite a tough thing in today's, today's world is to find, to, to find people that, that naturally have this talent and uh, that find negotiation kind of interesting and find the, the whole commercial thing interesting. But then, of course, if you think about the organization and start to think about some of the issues that go across the organization that you need to have in place, do you have systems that support this happening? Do you have those processes in place? In our experience, people very rarely have good commercial systems and processes, um, and particularly sales organizations, interestingly. I think procurement organizations are much more effective, usually. What's really interesting is that procurement is really only about 20 years old as a function. And the problem is that so many sales organizations are still doing stuff that was out of date when Queen Victoria was a kid. Flogging shower rings door to door is not a great way of selling complex enterprise sales. Now, I'm being unfair, I know, but the the reality is salespeople have not evolved. Absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely true. They have very few tools to help them out um, in, in terms of that preparation. The crazy thing is there are phenomenal tools available today to help you go through a process to plan strategic. How do I translate my commercial strategy into an approach that really works? And then to analyze and think about kind of, right, where, where is the risk involved in each of these deals? Where, how do I mitigate? How do I manage that risk? And then how do I mitigate it? How do I negotiate that risk? You talk to, to, to most, most salespeople, they, they, they don't think about risk because they're not bonus on it. And so therefore, why would they? But of course, that then exposes the organization significantly. This then raises a really fascinating question, which we're trying to tackle in the community we've set up, Sales of Force for Good, which is, is compensation, are compensation plans in sales fit for purpose? Because they tend to reward the initial transaction. The lady I was talking to you about a moment ago, she only gets to hang on to that account for a year. So it drives transactional behavior, and salespeople then become guilty of the drive-by shooting. They turn up, they make the sale, and then they bugger off. And if they are involved in any way, shape, or form, it's only to turn up for the renewal. More often than not, it's handed on to someone else. So from the customer's perspective, they have to start the whole miserable process of educating the vendor all over again. Now, in terms of something that you can negotiate that is of massive value to the uh, the buyer, is making sure that there is alignment and the, the handover is always smooth and there's continuity 
I fundamentally think that customer success should be involved right at the beginning of the sale. So I can say, Graham, Jim is your customer success manager. If we get that far, you and Jim will be working together to ensure the success of this project. And marketing is another bunch that need to be speaking to actual living, breathing human beings and the customer. But it's laughable how few marketing people ever speak to the customer, product development people. This is why I think community is going to be such a huge differentiator for um, a few organizations that do it well, that can cede control. And that, I think, is another really interesting element around negotiation. Because if you're playing the win-lose game, you're trying to control them, control your counterparty. But that doesn't work because people dig their heels in and say, well, bugger you. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen a complete change, haven't we? Sort of 30 years ago, you you had salespeople that had been in the job and had relationships for 20 years and uh, uh, and everyone uh, wined and dined together and played golf together. And, of course, what we ended up with was a lot of the time – the, the, the deals that were cut were probably not negotiated as effectively as they might be. The pendulum has swung completely the other way, and now we have both buyers and account managers moving jobs all the time. And you're quite right, we have no relationship there. And if you have no relationship, what are you going to end up with? A short-term price-driven outcome. And it really is of little value to, to shareholders at the end of the day. So um, what is the middle ground that, that, that makes sense? And I think that's something for organisations to really think about. And in order to make that successful, You've then got to really think about building the capability of those people and allowing them to, or training them first of all, but, but also allowing them to, to gain the experience and build those relationships with their counterparties. I definitely want to come back to the preparation piece, but there's something that you said that sparked a thought. There is a methodology in purchasing called PICOS, P-I-C-O-S, Performance Improvement and Cost Optimization Strategy. And it was developed by the guy who used to be the head meat buyer for Walmart. Um, so imagine the, uh, the milk of human kindness flowing through his veins when he was buying from abattoir owners. I mean, people who literally stun gunned or uh, slit the throats of cattle. Then he went to General Motors and he created this incredible 120-step system which is designed to attack the identity, the humanity of the salesperson before they get to the negotiating table. And one of their tactics, which is really very interesting, is they give you a procurement friend who acts as if they are your buddy all the way through. And when they start to turn native, they swap them for someone who looks and sounds exactly the same, but is a different person because they wear the same gray outfit and so on. And it's done intentionally to destabilize the salesperson. But these are tactical procurement people. What I'm very conscious of is there are about maybe 10% out there who really do understand the value of strategic partnerships. And they're not trying to squeeze the vendor for every last penny. They do understand that a penny here, a penny there does make a difference. But what they're looking for is the total value, the total cost of ownership. And too few vendors spend time asking this question, what can we replace? Yeah. Now that's a fabulous question, but most people in their preparation don't even bother to ask it or don't even know to ask it. 
No, I think that's right. It, it's interesting. I, I mean, I do a lot of work with procurement teams and, uh, and, and my experience of procurement teams over the last 10 years is they have become, and of course, I, I hear the inner workings of what they're doing in the background. And actually, my experience is that more often than not, the majority of procurement teams are genuinely trying to build true partnerships and true try and get value out. And it's interesting because they're very often negotiating with sales teams who talk win-win the whole way through. And you know who the organizations are I'm talking about that will uh, will very publicly espouse that it's all about value creation, it's all about long-term partnership and relationship. Those procurement people, they tell me firsthand, you know, that's the last thing on the mind of the salesperson when they come in. And it's the salesperson that so often narrows it down and drives hard on that volume or price conversation rather than looking at how can we create other value. And so often those sales teams are restricted and disempowered through very tight trade to trading terms that they can and can't negotiate. Their organizations very often put the shackles and the chains very tightly around them so that they are disempowered. And in fact, the procurement teams find that frustrating, that they would much rather try and escalate internally within the sales organization and get to the, uh, the, the, the organ grinder who can actually is empowered to negotiate. Otherwise, it just gets frustrating and all into this zero-sum game conversation. I think it's really important to understand the amount of effort and work that procurement has to go through to establish an RFP process. What it looks like from the, the buyer's perspective is they have to do a market assessment, and that can take quite some time and effort. Then they have to decide on what their procurement approach is going to be, and then they have to create a project team. And that project team will be made up of buyers, users, people who are going to be impacted by the decision. Then the tender scope has to be agreed. Then they have to set objectives for the negotiation. They have to get senior management sign-off, which can be a battle in itself. Then they have to map the stakeholders and what the, uh, how they're going to be impacted, the outcomes that they want. They have to create a, a tender time plan. Then they have to define and create the specification. Then they have to work on spending calculations. They have to agree on the selection criteria. They have to create contracts. They have to work on which tender tool they're going to use. They have to develop a long list of suppliers. Then they have to set up the RFI. Then they have to set up the communication plan. Then the RFP happens. Now, when you realize there's all that in the background, that gives you an inordinate amount of leverage. But again, what you've just described there is the amount of preparation and planning that the buying organization is prepared to invest in getting to a, a, a phenomenal outcome. And that's not just about getting the best price. They want the best price, but it's also about getting the true value of everything else. Then the sales guy turns up and how much preparation do they do in uh, in return for that? And They look and up the postcode. They do. And, um, and, <laughs> and, and then they find themselves suddenly in presenting a whole load of slides that the buyer already has seen because they were on the website and knows. And that's the reason they're sitting there. And it's completely value, no value add at all. So, so you're quite right. The other thing that I, I find is in terms of the power, balance of power in their heads, you know, the sales guy turns up. And whenever I talk to sales guys, they always tell me the same thing. They always say, well, why I love being a sales guy is because I know I'm the underdog. I know that it's the buyer that has the power. They know full well 
It's the buyer that makes the decision on where they go. They can come to me or they can go to my competitor. And I love that competitiveness that I want to win that deal at all costs. idiots. Well, that's what they all say. And the interesting thing, when you talk to the buyers, you know what they say? They say the exact opposite. And they say, actually, the sales guy is the one with the power because we need their product. They've invested so much in that brand. They know full well that internally I have to take their, their solution. And, uh, and they'll try and leverage it. And so both parties seem to think that the other guy has all the power. Well, they can't both be right. And of course, the, that balance of power tends to be much more in the balance than, than any of them give it credit for. And, uh, and it, in my experience, it is salespeople that particularly undervalue their power. And if they did more of this preparation and planning, if they truly understood the buyer's position, if they spent even just read through the uh, annual report of the, uh, the, the buying organization, they would suddenly realize how much more power they have and be able to leverage that in the deal they do. And not only the annual report, they have to listen to the quarterly analyst calls because what they need to be listening for is when the CEO and the CFO stumble. If you pay attention to that cue, that will tell you where your leverage is. And they stumble a lot. It's not like they've got 24 quarters of compound 40%, 80% growth. Most of these organizations are struggling to get 2, 3, 5, 10%. So you've got to do your preparation. So let, let's talk about the steps that you would advise vendor organizations to take in terms of preparing for a, a major negotiation. You hit the first one absolutely on the head, which is to absolutely understand as much of the circumstances of the other organization uh, on the other side of the table as you possibly can. And we just talked about a number of the things that you can do there where you can get that information. You read the analyst reports, you read the trade press, you uh, you, you read the annual reports and, and so on and so forth. And of course, what you also then do is you prepare those questions that you know are going to elicit the information that's going to give you that uh, that data, and then you you organize for, let's call them information sharing sessions, meetings, where you're not getting into the negotiation. All you're trying to do is trade information. And by the way, that's not just about getting information from them. You want to be giving information as well, because if you are truly trying to build a partnership here, it's important that they understand what's important to you, because they're going to be formulating similar kind of concepts. So, uh, kind of giving and taking of information and, uh, and building relationship as you go through. That's a, an element that's very often underestimated is the, the importance of doing that information sharing. They've also got to multi-thread the conversations so that they understand the different stakeholders and the implications of any of these major purchase decisions. And very often, particularly where there is a closed RFP, they're told that they're not allowed to speak. And this then speaks to the lack of preparation that salespeople put in place. If you're going to target an enterprise, don't just respond to the RFP that lands like a war and peace on your desk and you've got to respond in two weeks. Um, If that happens, you've got maybe a 2.6 chance of winning it, uh, 2.6% chance of winning it. You've got to have started this process 12, 18, 24 months before. And I don't think there is anywhere near enough forward thinking. If you want to win 
Bank of America or Barclays or the uh, an NHS trust, start the work two, three years beforehand. Start developing the relationships so that by the time an RFP comes out, you are already well embedded and have strong relationships. But salespeople are too transactional because of how they're compensated, how they're measured and how they keep their job. And they think they're all, well, most of them are short term. Even in the enterprise space, I, I've worked with million dollar people who earn a million dollars plus a year. And I'm flabbergasted at the lack of understanding and lack of business acumen that these people have. Because I think to a large extent, in a, a big organization, seven blue lines uh, making up three blue letters, inshallah, bukra mumkin, as the Arabs would say, that gets you through the door. Um, yeah. And they're going to buy from one of the big vendors because it's a safe bet. But the really sharp ones, they recognize how to destabilize current preferences. They understand how to differentiate from the status quo, which 60% of purchase uh, buying cycles end up in the status quo. That's your biggest competitor, along with ego. I think, well, ego, we'll come back to that scenario. Okay. What we're talking about is quite industry specific as well. It's interesting. One of our one of the clients I've worked with for the last fifteen years, they're an aggregate and building suppliers, a building supplies business. Actually, they're not. What they are really is a private equity business because what they have done is they've made a, a built a business over the last twenty years of acquiring very small aggregates and building uh, uh, materials uh, businesses. And you know what? They spend 15 to 20 years nurturing the relationship with small family-owned businesses before any acquisition is ever made. And by the time the acquisition is made, this isn't a, this isn't a, a, a buying deal. This has been something that's been nurtured for years and years and gradually shaped and, okay. and so on. So your point, they don't think of negotiation as in the same way that we're talking about as some kind of brinkmanship. They think about negotiation being entirely about how do I make a marriage here that's going to last a lifetime, which is going to make profit for me and profit for them, and so on. And that's a very different mindset. Now, if you can build that into your organization, and in any industry, you can do that. But you've got to think about negotiation not as when I open the door and sit at the table. I think about it right at the beginning when I start to, uh, in terms of who I hire into my business, how I train them into the systems and processes I instill. It's into the entire culture of my How leadership. you measure and reward. Exactly right. How I manage, how I reward, and, and so on and so forth. What, uh, what the roles and responsibilities are. It's in the entire culture, the commercial culture of the organization. How many leaders do you hear talking about commercial culture? I wish we had more of those. And, I, and my challenge to anyone listening is, do you have clarity around what that commercial culture is? And if you don't have clarity around what that is, I would suggest that particularly at the moment, the businesses that are doing well coming out of the pandemic, they're the ones that have built an organization that's all around building profitable and commercial partnerships with the, the people that very often we see as our competitors. I'm banding around a, a quote, and I'm pretty sure it came from Jay Abraham, which is, success in the future will depend on your ability to collaborate. When we look at the complexity of supply chains, when we look at the complexity of the IT stacks uh, within organizations, you are one tiny cog in a component 
which is part of a machine, which is part of a fleet of functions, systems, processes, all of which are meant to be supporting the client's business in delivering the board's strategy. And if you don't know how to play nicely and collaborate even with your competitors, and I've had some really fascinating conversations in the last couple of years with people in very, very large enterprises. And you see Microsoft collaborating with Google and Amazon, despite the fact they are their fiercest competitors. And they're not doing badly overall. And you you look at how organizations that have this adversarial mindset, and it's all about what can we grab for ourselves, they will struggle. And I think what's going to be really interesting as well is the day of the road warrior salesperson who thinks that somehow breathing someone else's air is a superpower. If the pandemic hasn't taught us this, you don't need to physically be present. I've worked with a bunch of people who've had their best year, year and a half ever. And when the pandemic is over, which hopefully it will be soon, what's really interesting is the people on the ground, the people with the local knowledge, the people with the relationships will be channel partners. And unless you know how to really foster those relationships and negotiate well with them, I think you will struggle in the economy going forward. Couldn't agree with you more. The points around collaboration. Yeah, how many businesses have we seen these lovely stories of during the pandemic that kind of these businesses would have been dead had they not got out of bed and started to collaborate and to, to, to reinvent themselves and to work with other organizations. Yes, they haven't made huge amounts of profit during the pandemic. Many of them, they struggled and so on, but they dug in and continue to collaborate and they're going to come in or they're starting to come out now and we're starting to see them be not just profitable, but super profitable. Those are going to go. And I think you're absolutely right. Collaboration is the way. You mentioned the word ego. Let's just, before we finish, talk yeah, about please. that. Because <laughs> what is it that stops people collaborating? It is that desire to win. And if there is one watch out, so I have for everyone around the subject of negotiation, the people that tend to make it to the most senior senior roles in organizations often have that ego sitting there and their desire to win and the desire to take over. And for me, that is the biggest evil in negotiation. It's a, a bit of a cliche to say there is no ego in negotiation, but of course there is. And, uh, and you've got to keep it, leave it at the door. That ego and the desire to win at all costs is the thing that will undermine you most. Collaboration is where it's at. And collaboration does not mean capitulate. Collaboration is you are still firm. You are still absolutely firm, but you're looking at how can I allow my business partner to do well, maybe even do better than I do, but I know it's in my best interest to do that. And uh, it's not about winning. Again, if you're thinking long-term, then sometimes... You need to take a bullet for your customer. Sometimes you need to give them the win, knowing that you're cashing in uh, or you're collecting an IOU marker and that you will help them out now. In return, they will help you out. But that can only work if there is trust. And trust is earned slowly. It's lost quickly. And it's built through reliability through responsiveness, through relevance, through honesty, through constructive conflict, through clarity of communication, 
having the courage to admit when they would be better served going to your closest competitor. It's built by having the customer's interests at first. Their success is paramount. And working with them in terms of understanding what they are trying to achieve. And yeah, you give them some concessions today, knowing that in doing that, they will be better positioned to achieve their desired outcomes in the future. And that they will see you as an ally. The problem is, if you go in with this adversarial mindset, or as bad as an accomplice, helping them to continue to propagate bad behaviors or self-destructive, self-harming practices, and you don't challenge them, that I think is absolutely mis-selling. And it's malpractice. Allies don't always have to agree. Partners definitely don't always have to agree. And it's in that constructive conflict that we can really develop much better solutions for our customers. I absolutely agree with you. It's uh, it's it's all about that building trust. And uh, and the other part, and all the things you said, I agree with. The other part is always delivering on what you say, doing what you say you will, and being dependable about it. And if something goes wrong, then having the humility sometimes to to stand step back and admit the, uh, the, the fallibilities and, uh, and correct them. And again, that means leaving the ego outside the negotiation room. There are so many brilliant stories right now. I mean, it's, it's fantastic watching people coming out of the pandemic and so many small organizations, particularly just finding the opportunities here by, uh, by doing exactly these things and working in partnerships and building trust and so on and so forth. I really hope that uh, they stand the test of time and come through. It'll be lovely to see big organizations embedding this into their culture as well and making sure that their teams are doing the same things. <laughs> I love your optimism. <laughs> Maybe I'm just old and cynical. <laughs> okay, look, we're coming to the top of the hour. I'm really curious, what are, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? It's uh, Wouldn't you like to have a crystal ball right now and say we're talking here about our views around what's coming out of the pandemic and uh, how the uh, new world is going to shape up? Wouldn't you love to know right now exactly uh, how that is going to be the case? How are our clients going to want to work with us going forward? What are the things that are going to be super valuable to them? I think the things we've been talking about here are, are, are many of the answers, but it's trying to, to figure that out. That's the biggest challenge right now is still this level of ambiguity, albeit starting to settle. And, and, and how we're going to keep people or get people back to working in a more flexible way and uh, and really appreciating that the world has shifted, the world has moved on, the world has changed now. How do we do business differently? I think uh, answering some of these questions are the biggest challenges. It's really interesting that you say this. There was a meta study I read about, uh, must have been 15, 16 years ago, on mankind's greatest fear. And it wasn't the dentist. It wasn't public speaking. It was the future. Because out of these 300 studies, what they found was that the future brings with it uncertainty. And I think if we're going to mitigate that fear, we need to collaborate, we need to communicate, we need, and above all, we need to listen. And that is a skill that is sadly very lacking. In fact, in the LinkedIn State of Sales report, the number one ask from customers was that salespeople would listen. And they're not trained in it. They're not coached in it. They don't practice it. And 
the best salespeople that I know are deep listeners. They listen surgically. They listen not only for what is being said, but for what's not being said. They use what they hear in order to ask challenging, demanding, uncomfortable, insightful questions that help their customers see possibilities, see their world through a different lens. And whilst we have no control over the future, we can control our behavior. And if there was one thing that I would say to people who are struggling with that challenge, it's get out there and listen and ask customers about how they have seen better than you are providing them. Have they ever seen better? That takes enormous courage, but it will give you enormous insight and it will help you to evolve. Speak to unhappy customers. Salesforce did some research in 2020 as well, where they found that vendors who spoke to unhappy customers had a 600% faster product development cycle. Now, customers want you to stay relevant. They don't want to change suppliers. It's a ball ache. Going through that procurement process and having to put up with yet more slide decks and drivel from salespeople, they don't want to. And you make a hell of a lot more profit by selling to your existing customers. I used to, I don't do so much these days, but I used to sit in a lot of case studies, role plays of people doing sales meetings and uh, negotiations. You know, I used to uh, write on little post-it notes and put sort of coaching tips in front of people while they were talking and so on to try and help them do it more effectively. The post-it note that I ended up just having printed so that I didn't have to keep writing it because I used it so often, just said two words on it. Shut up. Stop talking. Shut up. Exactly. <laughs> I used to have one that said STFU, which was far more direct. <laughs> Excellent. Graham, tell me something. You, you've got a golden ticket and you can fly back in time and you can advise your idiot 23-year-old self on something you know he'd have ignored. It would have been really valuable. What choice bit of advice would you give him? Jeez. <laughs> that sounds like I might be getting a litany. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one piece of advice I would give my 23-year-old self? Don't worry about the money. Do the right thing. Think about relationships. Think about people. Think about doing the right thing. Do it to the best quality. Work hard, but don't worry about the money. You do all those things. If you do the right thing, the money will come. It's really interesting. Today, I released a podcast with a pal of mine, Mark Herbert. And um, the quote that I put in the title is, be prepared to be fired every day for doing the right thing. And I could not agree more. Yeah, absolutely. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to, because it will help them to improve their mindset, their preparation, their negotiation? There's a lot of brilliant um, kind of podcasts and web webinars out there now that uh, that are giving a lot of information. The best book I've read in a while is um, a, a book called Mindset, which is all about growth mindset. Carol Dweck, exactly, and uh, and and I found that uh, incredibly uh, enlightening. Uh, at, uh, even in my fifties, that uh, just how much I uh, 
restrict often myself in terms of my own fixed mindset and uh, and how much it just is possible. So that's been a, a huge inspiration to me. So uh, uh, another another element. I mean, I've talked a lot about negotiation culture. There's a book called The Negotiation uh, The Negotiation Book by Steve Gates. I think that talks a lot of many of the things we've talked about here, and I think that's very inspirational if you're interested in negotiation. So, uh, so I'd recommend that as well. Two books I would recommend, Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Kass and Infinite Games by Simon Sinek. Understanding, so it feeds on the concepts that, that Carol Dweck talks about uh, in terms of a growth mindset. People who play finite games see an end and they're trying to win and not lose. And often you find that people are actually playing the game to not lose rather than to win. Infinite game players, their objective is to keep the game going. And what they're trying to do is create a bigger pie for everybody, which means that they can collaborate with their competition. They can partner with their customers. And what they're looking at is that long-term approach. And what I think we need to be cognizant of is that I think we've already lost the game to China. Chinese companies have at least a minimum of a 20-year plan, if not 100-year plans. And we forget that the Chinese had an empire of a billion people 3,000 years ago. And we're operating on quarterly reporting cycles. If we do not start shifting our thinking and start playing the long game, we're just going to be acquired by Chinese private equity. You're absolutely bang on. And I don't see that as a bad thing that, uh, that China is winning the game, because I think if, we all, uh, uh, if we're all prepared to, uh, to accept that we need to shift our own mindsets and so on, then maybe we can learn a huge amount uh, from, from their way of doing things. Human rights may be aside, but, uh, but many, of their, uh, many of their commercial approaches seem to work very nicely. Uh, absolutely. Okay. How can people get hold of you, Graham? The best way would be through um, our website, I guess, the, the catpartnership.com. It's probably the easiest way to do it. Or uh, by all means, uh, drop me an email at graham.botrite at the gappartnership.com. Either way, uh, it'd be great to, uh, to, to hear from someone. Wonderful. Graham Botrite, thank you. Marcus, thank you as well. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, helpful, then please like, comment, share, and do subscribe. If you feel the urge, then please go to either Apple or Google Podcasts and also leave an honest review. One star, three stars, five stars, as long as it's honest and heartfelt, it's very welcome. And if you can show me ways that I can improve, I'd be very grateful. Now, if you're the owner or the CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million revenue range, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable, profitable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees across all of your revenue operations and customers who stick with you year after year, decade after decade, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-last.com, or you can direct message me on LinkedIn. And there's an invitation for anybody who really believes that sales is a force for good. We've set up a global community to wrestle back control of the sales profession and create the conditions for it to become an aspirational career choice and for future salespeople and future leaders to be proud 
of being in the profession. We want to put the customer at the heart of everything we do and provide buyer safety. So we're capturing all the lessons. We're building the ROI business case for selling well and selling ethically and creating buyer safety and being pro-customer. If you're interested in that, follow the hashtags pro-customer, SAFFG, or buyer safety. And we've got some videos, we've got community, and we're capturing all these lessons and making them freely available for community members forever. So that's Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Thank you and happy selling. Bye-bye.